Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The FT. More scandalous behavior at Britain's leading banks. Why Southeast Asia could be worth looking at for adventurous investors and why wealthy foreigners are still buying UK property to rent out. Welcome to this week's FT Money Show. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues, Elaine Moore. Hello. And Thomas Hale. Hello. Plus a special guest, Denise Law of ASEAN Confidential. Hello. It's three years since Bob Diamond, then Chief Executive of Barclays, told a parliamentary committee that the period of remorse and apology for banks needed to be over. On the evidence this week, it looks like the period of remorse is only just beginning. First, we had the lurid scandals surrounding the co-op bank, and this week, the UK's biggest high street bank, Lloyd's, was hit with the biggest fine the regulator has ever imposed for misconduct in a retail finance operation. The regulator got tough on Lloyd's, increasing the penalty by 10%, Because of the seriousness of its misdeeds, which centred on the incentives it offered to branch and call centre staff to sell ancillary products to bank customers, and because Lloyd's carried on with these dubious incentives even after being told they were inappropriate. Now it faces another dose of reputational damage and the task of contacting hundreds of thousands of customers to explain itself. Elaine Moore has been looking at the whole sorry affair. Elaine, we've talked many times about banks behaving badly on The Money Show, but even by their standards, this was something special. Can you regale us with some of the lowlights of the FCA's notice? So the the regulators, uh, the details that the regulator provided to us yesterday were pretty spectacular. Some of the behaviour that the advisors were um, were doing, it was things like um, selling products to themselves and their, uh, their wife and their colleagues in order to make up a sales target because advisors were so worried about getting demoted or losing pay because they didn't sell enough products. There were also incentives that had all these flashy names. There was a grand in your hand. There was a Christmas cracker. There was lots of money on offer to uh, sales staff who would sell more and more products to customers. And as the regulator said, if you incentivise staff in this way, then you run the risk of missales happening. Now, that's all scandalous in, a, in an entertaining kind of way. But did customers actually lose out heavily as a result of these uh, sales incentives, as they did, for instance, with payment protection insurance? Well, this is where it's really interesting. And uh, if anyone was looking, the share price of Lloyd's didn't really move all that much yesterday, which is sort of surprising when you have a scandal of this scale coming out, the biggest ever fine for a retail bank from the regulator. Um, the reason for that, 
probably, possibly, is that they don't think the amount of redress paid out to customers will be that big. And that's partly because, as the regulator said, not every product sold over this period between the start of 2010 and March in 2012 were were missold. So not everything was sold badly. Um, But it's also because some of the products sold, customers have actually done quite well out of them. So a lot of this is about um, investment bonds that were sold to retail customers. And actually, if you look at stock market performance between that period, a lot of them will have made more money than they would have done if they'd just put their money into a savings account. So it's unlikely that the customers will be complaining to Lloyds. Some will, and some may say that they've lost money. And Lloyds has already started to contact customers and customers that receive a letter can always complain and ask for more money. That's They're well within their rights to do that. But the bank's not expecting to have to pay out huge amounts of money, like the billions of pounds that it's had to pay out for PPI. Okay, so if you're a Lloyd's customer and you think you have lost out as a result of this kind of activity, or you bought one of these products and you're not at all convinced that you should have done, what should you do? Should you wait for Lloyd's to contact you or should you start banging the drum yourself? Lloyd's and the regulators say at the moment, do nothing. Lloyd's will contact you. It's looking at some of the cases that it thinks are uh, the, the most risk of mis-selling. But it's a really, really small number. Um, it's, it's generally the people that they, that they think were uh, receiving bonuses when the sales were um, probably wrong for customers. So they're going to start with those, then it might broaden out a bit later on. What they'll do is send letters to customers or contact them in some other way. So that's going to happen first. As I said, the consumer groups are saying that the customers who get that letter... Um, can then go back to the bank and say, we're not happy with what you're offering us. The bank will have eight weeks to respond back to them again. So it's it's a process that's a little bit drawn out. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether the claims management companies get involved in this. I haven't heard too much from them so far. Again, because they just don't think that people will be that unhappy with the products that they were sold. And finally, what's being done to stop this sort of thing happening again in future? Well, the bank would say that it already has this under control. Um, It's already changed the way that it sells products. It's taken out most of these really um, heavy-handed sales incentives, although it it has admitted to me that it does actually still provide money to staff who make um, sales based on the volume of sales that they make. Um, But they say that it's also, they've also based incentives around customer satisfaction now, so it's not purely on the volume of sales. Um, All banks are looking at the way that they um, provide extra bonuses to staff it's this is still an issue that um, the regulator ha- says has to be overhauled. It's been talking about this for a long time. It was something that the regulator said it was going to come down hard on last year. So we don't know whether this is going to be the start of uh, many. OK, thank you very much, Elaine. Although somehow I doubt this will be the last time we discuss bank misconduct on The Money Show. Still to come, why wealthy foreigners are buying ever more UK property to rent out. But first, let's take a trip to warmer climes. Many listeners may remember the time, back in the early 1990s, when investing in the dynamic economies of Southeast Asia was flavour of the month. In the days when China's huge economic expansion was yet to really register, Brazil suffered from high inflation and Russia was still recovering from the chaos of the Yeltsin era, countries like Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia looked very attractive indeed and Western money poured in. Then came the Asian financial crisis in 1997, which condemned Southeast Asia to living in China's shadows. But behind the scenes, tough reforms were pushed through and markets gradually recovered. Indeed, over the past five years, Asian markets have been some of the best performers in the world. 
So, with big challenges ahead in China and Brazil dealing with slowing growth, it's now a good time to look afresh at Southeast Asia. I'm joined now by Denise Law from ASEAN Confidential, which is a premium research service run by the Financial Times. Denise, let's start by asking the inevitable question: Is there a risk? Of another Asian financial crisis like the one in 1997, once the U.S. central bank stops printing money, this is a question that many analysts and investors have been asking all year, and our answer to this question is no.、Um, what we see that's happening in Southeast Asia is a very dynamic and interesting story right now, and the first thing to really concentrate and look at is、um, the fact that a lot of these corporates based in Southeast Asia haven't been. Um, borrowing as much from the U.S. dollar bond markets,、um, something that they did a lot of back in the、uh, 1997 during the Asian financial crisis.、Um, foreign reserves are also much stronger than they used to be, and as you can see now, consumption is becoming a huge driver of growth in the region. Okay, when we talk about Southeast Asia, what exactly do we mean? Is Southeast Asia the same as the so-called ASEAN countries, or is it something else? When we look at ASEAN,、um, we usually think of ASEAN five. So the biggest five countries are Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam. When we think of Southeast Asia, we also think of the frontier countries as well, such as、um, Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia. Singapore and Brunei are also included in there, but they're already emerged, and、um, they're the two economies, especially Singapore, that you know are seen as kind of an example of what some of these Southeast Asian countries aspire to be like in the future. Okay, now what、um, what advantages do Southeast Asian countries have over other emerging markets? For instance, the the BRICS that that everybody's been so obsessed with the past few years. Well, that obsession seems to have faded, I think,、um, and Southeast Asia has managed to get a bit of the attention. Um, what's really interesting about Southeast Asia at the moment that people are starting to pay more attention to is the integration. So by 2015, the ASEAN countries are trying to be more integrated in terms of their economies, in terms of trade, in terms of regulation, and. Um, don't forget that you know ASEAN has 600 million consumers, and in countries such as the Philippines,、um, the average age is 23. So、uh, they're in a demographic sweet spot, and as they get older and enter the workforce, they will be spending more. And you look at countries such as China, which is actually the opposite is happening, where they're actually getting you know really old, and there is that saying that China might get old before it gets rich. But for Southeast Asia. I think they might be able to get rich first.、Yeah. And in your view, which is the most interesting of the markets?、Uh, you know, you mentioned those big five、mm. that you look at right now. We think、um, the ASEAN five countries are very interesting, and of course,、um, Myanmar is also quite fascinating as well. But right now, we really favor the Philippines.、Um, it's been ASEAN's rising star this year. It's done very well.、Um, the stock market so much, despite producing stellar returns in the past five years.、Um, we really like President Aquino. He's tried really hard to root out corruption,、um, and you know, bring the Philippines back on investors' radar. We also think Thailand and Indonesia are interesting as well. I mean, the consumers are still there, despite some of the、uh, problems that these two countries have been facing. Political risk is rising in Thailand, and in, in Indonesia, we are seeing that the rupiah is falling quite rapidly. And、um, right now, they've got a current account deficit、um, to worry about. But overall, we are really interested in the consumption story in ASEAN. Okay, what about the the risks and the challenges facing、uh, the region and people who invest there? I mean, in, you mentioned Thailand. There's practically a revolution going on there at the moment, <laughs> isn't there? Just just recently,、um, 
Um, I think it was 34 countries have already issued travel warnings to Thailand, and I intend to go to Thailand anyway, um, regardless. But uh, tourism is the one bright spot for the economy, and if the political risk spires out of control, that could affect growth as well, because they're also dealing with weak exports and also household debt. But the biggest risk um, that I see is uh, QE tapering in the U.S. A lot of these economies have been overbought by foreign investors, particularly Thailand and Indonesia. So when tapering starts to happen, it's likely that um, we expect a lot of fund managers to pull out. However, once that happens, there will also be opportunistic buyers who come back in for the long-term growth story when valuations come back down. Thank you very much, Denise. That was Denise Law, Director of Research at ASEAN Confidential. And you can read lots more about investing in Southeast Asia, including which funds, investment trusts and shares offer exposures to the region in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is available on both Saturdays and Sundays, and on Kindle, on tablet devices and online at ft.com forward slash money. On to our final item today. Buy-to-let has been one of the big investment stories of the past decade. (coughs) Millions of people in the UK have become amateur landlords, buying one or in some cases entire portfolios of property to rent out to those who cannot yet afford to buy a property of their own. They're attracted by, in many cases, healthy yields, the likelihood of rising prices over time and the security that bricks and mortar offers. This is an investment product that in many people's minds is very tangible. Incompetent companies can't mess it up for you and the government can't take it off you. The financial crisis may have reduced the availability of buy-to-let mortgages, but it certainly hasn't finished the sector off. Nor does it appear that some changes to the taxation of second property sales, announced in the autumn statement last week, will do so either. And it's not just Britons who are attracted to -to buy-to-let. Thousands of foreigners have also bought properties to rent out. I'm joined now by Tom Hale, who has been looking at some new data on foreign ownership of buy-to-let property. Tom, what can you tell us about the ownership of buy-to-let property by foreign nationals? We're currently seeing a lot of resurgence in the buy-to-let market in general um, after the financial crisis. And the interesting story that's come out of the last five years here is that the number of foreign landlords has been consistently rising, whereas the the number of landlords in general has been going up and down. The number of foreign landlords has consistently risen over a five-year period to the end of March 2012. Um, This is according to a report from an accountancy firm called UHY Hacker Young, who made a freedom of information request from HMRC. And basically there are now over 2 million foreign landlords um, investing in UK buy-to-let property. That's up 39% from 1.5 million, just below 1.5 million in 2006-7. So this doesn't include companies or property funds. This is just individual foreign landlords who are buying property in the UK. So all of these people are domiciled abroad, um, but they're they're, they're investing in UK property for the highly attractive yields and capital appreciation. And presumably a lot of this is concentrated in London and the South East, is it? Or are rich Chinese and Russians buying flats in provincial cities too? Um, no, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly concentrated in London and the South East, um, where, you know, um, property prices are rising much more quickly. Um, the investments are seen to be a lot more sound. Um, and, you know, the data doesn't um, specify 
um, proportions of investment in new build properties, but there are a lot of anecdotal claims um, from people in the sector that this kind of investment is boosting the quality of new build properties in and around London, um, areas like Battersea, um, where new build homes are being now directly marketed at foreign investors, where previously they would be marketed at UK buy-to-let investors. So the market's really starting to respond to this trend and you know that's being reflected in the way they market new properties and really the, the, the likelihood and of being able to sell new properties. There's a lot of talk in general about property in central London particularly being bought for cash. Is that happening with these landlords or are they obtaining mm. mortgage finance to buy to buy yeah. property? Uh, this, is, this is actually quite a, a grey area. Um, it, it would... There's, there's, a, there's a general assumption that a lot of foreign investors are buying through cash, um, but actually they have a strong motivation to, to, to fund their purchases through mortgages as this reduces their exposure to tax very often. Um, the problem for them is that buy-to-let lenders in the UK tend not to lend to foreign investors, so they need to you know, fund their mortgages from private banks or the international arms of clearing banks. Um, the Bank of China, in fact is the only buy-to-let lender in the UK that will accept foreign nationals currently. Um, Although, in that case, borrowers have to be from China or Hong Kong, Macau or Singapore. Um, So it's quite a complicated picture, um, and it's very difficult to get data on this. I mean, in cases where they are um, using mortgages to buy, it's often through, you know, untraceable private bank-based funding rather than through large um, buy-to-let institutions in the UK. And finally, is there anything on the horizon that might dampen demand or deter foreign interest in the future? Or should we just get used to the idea of overseas landlords? Yeah, there is um, something which UHY actually flagged up, which is from April 2015. Um, changes to the way capital gains tax work mean that foreign investors, when they sell properties, will be will have to pay quite a lot of tax on those sales. Um, so, you know, some people are saying this will completely change the trend um, and deter foreign investors. But at the same time, um, even given those rising taxes, um, the yields and the, the rise in property values still make it um, a pretty stable investment. OK, thank you very much, Tom. There's lots more on this issue in this weekend's FT Money. And if you want to add your own comments, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is FT Money. Or you can go online at ft.com forward slash money. Or you can send us an email. The address is money at ft.com. We've lots more online and in this weekend's paper. What to do, for instance, if you're a Vodafone shareholder ahead of the company's big return of capital. The annuity market was described this week as exploitative and dysfunctional. We've more on that. We look at the devil in the detail of the finance bill, which was published this week. We've more thoughts on where to allocate your capital from John Redwood and more ideas for cheap quality stocks from our columnist Merrin Somerset Webb. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Elaine, Tom and Denise Law of ASEAN Confidential. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.